about halfway through that video, <clears throat> the narrator makes a very insightful statement. He says, how I identify myself determines how I approach life. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. We all approach our lives based on our view of who we actually believe uh, that we are, not who we say that we believe we are, not, not who we believe that we're supposed to be or who we believe we should be or could be or want to be. No, at the end of the day, we approach our lives based on who we actually believe that we are. If I believe that I'm unlovable, then I won't allow other people to love me. I'll push them away through my behavior. If I believe that I'm a victim, then I will blame others uh, for all of my problems. If I believe that I'm better than everyone else, then I'll be condescending in the way that I treat people. If I believe that no one can teach me anything, then I'll be unteachable, right? If I believe I'm worthless, then I won't be able to take a compliment from someone else. I'll focus on the things that I do wrong more than what I do right. People, uh, people approach their lives based on who they believe that they actually are. And this is true of Jesus as well. He was full of compassion. He was patient with people. He, he loved to teach and instruct and disciple others. And yet when he was confronted in his life by hostile voices, those who wished to silence him from testifying to the truth, he never backed down. He never shied away. He didn't simply try to keep the peace. In fact, Jesus could be quite confrontational at times, but it's not because he was arrogant or ill-tempered. It's because he knew who he was. And so he was able to approach people, even, even people who didn't like him, with confidence and with love and compassion because his identity wasn't rooted in what other people thought or believed about him. His identity was founded solely in who the Father said that he was. And so this entire subject of identity could probably be a sermon series in and of itself, but I want to focus on the, the continuing story in the gospel according to John. And what we find in this uh, next part of the narrative is Jesus confronting the culture of his day in a very direct, very assertive manner that did, did not endear him to very many people, by the way. And yet he was able to do that with confidence because he knew who he was. His identity in the Father was secure to the point that he was unshakable, even when he found himself in situations where the culture opposed him directly and vehemently, which is so beneficial for us to learn from today because more than any other time that I'm aware of, at least in my lifetime, Obviously, throughout history, there have been periods of great persecution for the church, and we see, in the new, uh, we see that in the New Testament and beyond, including today in other parts of the world. But in our lifetime here, I believe that there are now more voices openly hostile toward the gospel in the church and our freedom to be the expression of both than I think we've ever seen in our American culture to date. That is happening now at every level of our society. You probably know that in the media and in entertainment, in, in literature and in formal education from primary school to grad school, in our government and in its policies throughout popular culture to the point that I think we can legitimately draw some very timely and relevant parallels from our story in John with what we're experiencing in our culture in this generation. And so this morning as we witness Jesus in this escalating confrontation with the religious leaders and even some who claim to be his followers, I'd like to 
to pose a series of questions for us to consider today based on his testimony before a culture that was hostile toward the gospel then. And as we go, we'll talk about how important understanding our identity in Christ is to effectively living out that gospel and sharing the message with others like he did. And it is uh, vitally important that we get this right. Otherwise, we will never be as effective as we could be or as we should be or as he intended for us to be in sharing this gospel message with others until we actually believe that we are who he says that we are. And if you've been a if you've been a parent any length of time, you've probably experienced this at some level. There have been many occasions over the years raising my own kids when I would show one of them how to do something and they would say, well, dad, I can't do that. They knew that I could do it, but they didn't believe that they could. But once I would tell them, you know, in fact, you can do that. Whatever it was that I was showing them at the time, it's almost in that moment as if there's a new aspect uh, of their identity that comes alive in that moment. Once their father tells them that, yes, you can, yes, you can do that, their entire perspective and confidence on what they're able to accomplish in that moment can change. And one great example of that actually didn't involve me directly other than I was there to witness it was at one of Coleman's uh, belt qualifications in Taekwondo, my oldest son. In fact, both of my sons are black belts in Taekwondo. And so uh, any of you young guys here who may be interested in my daughter as the years go on, you just keep that in mind. But both the boys are black belts, and, and at each level of uh, qualification to get your next belt, right, they would make you go through these series of rigorous tests, and of course they get harder as you go. And one part of that test is you have to break a board with your fist or with your foot or however they want you to do it. And when these kids start out and they're young and they're at, you know, white belt and yellow belt in the early uh, phases, those boards are fairly thin and pretty brittle, and you could about flick them with your finger and they would break. Right, But as you go up, the boards get thicker, they get harder, and there, there are times when they actually stack them together and there are multiple boards. And so it gets harder and harder as you go. And I'll never forget, we were at one of Coleman's higher levels and they brought out these boards and the instructors got them there and he's gone up to this point in the testing and they said, now break, break the boards. And my son rears back and does his best uh, thrust with his fist and crack. I mean, it sounded like two cars hitting together. His fist hit those boards, and the boards didn't budge. And from about 35 feet away, I could see the pain on his face. You knew that it hurt. And the instructor said, hit it again. And so he reared back, and he came at it with all that he had. Crack! Same result. Now, when you hit something with your fist and it doesn't move, you know how bad that hurts? If you do it again, it is brutal. And again, you could see it all over his face and the instructor said, hit it again. And I'm telling you, literally we sat there for what seemed like an eternity as my son struck those boards over and over and over again and they would not break. His hand was beginning to swell. It was as red as a beet. I mean, it was bad and he was hurting. And as his father, I wanted to run up and say, come on, come sit down. It's okay. But that wasn't going to happen. That instructor began to yell at him 
because there was no way he was going to let him sit down until he broke those boards. And this went on. It seemed like forever until finally you could see the intensity swell up inside my son. And he was angry now. And he reared back and he put his fist right through those boards. Now, the most significant part of that that I found is that after that day, Coleman never had any trouble breaking those boards again. Not once. What was the difference? Because the boards didn't get softer. They didn't get thinner. They didn't get easier. The difference is that he knew now what he was capable of. He knew who he was. And I'm telling you that if you can grasp the reality of who you are in Christ, it will completely revolutionize the way that you approach your life. You'll make decisions differently. You'll handle your relationships differently. You will see the world differently once you have a firm grasp on who he says that you are. And that matters not only for you, but for the world around you, because the world needs you to be who God created you to be. Not a shadow of that person or the shell of that person. The world needs you to be all that God created you to be, which is to be like Christ. You see, the world needs us to live like Jesus. And so we're going to talk uh, about this today and ask some questions that will hopefully help us determine if we are, in fact, living in the full reality of who God created us to be as we see Jesus living out this gospel. So let's pick up our story right where we left off last week at John chapter 8. And we'll start with verses 12 through 20 as Jesus is now once again teaching the crowds who were gathered to him. So uh, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus opens up this part of his teaching with a statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Immediately, the Pharisees challenge him because under Jewish law, when a testimony was given in court, it had to be corroborated by at least one other witness. So there had to be at least two people giving the same testimony for that testimony to be considered valid, which is why they would uh, come back to him with the statement, you're bearing witness about yourself. All right. But they weren't just challenging the admissibility of his own testimony according to the law. They were actually challenging the validity of his testimony as well. They're asserting that his testimony was false, that it was invalid, not just inadmissible, because they continue saying your testimony is not true. And so they're trying to use these legal arguments against his claims. And I, I love what Leon Morris wrote about this statement that Jesus makes about himself. He said, a seeing man doesn't need someone to prove the light. He simply sees it. Light establishes its claim. It does so not by arguments, but by shining. 
light must always be accepted for itself and that notwithstanding the objections of the blind. In other words, it's kind of hard to argue that there's no light when you're standing in the midst of it, right? Even, even if you're too blind to see it, your blindness does not nullify the presence of light nonetheless. And so the approach to their argument is completely off base to begin with, even though Jesus does address their legal claims against him. He points out that he and the Father uh, both testify as to his true identity. So there is, in fact, a corroborating witness. But the real significance of this part of the confrontation is the inseparable connection between Jesus' witness and his coming sacrifice at the cross, which, of course, was the culmination of his entire life and work on earth. In other words, his witness and how he approached his life and ministry were inextricably linked. The word uh, witness in this passage is the ancient Greek word martyria, which is where we get our English word martyr from. We know that means uh, those who give their lives now for their testimony, their witness about the Christ. And so there were and are martyrs because of their martyria, their testimony. Those first century disciples' lives and ultimately their deaths were completely defined and determined by their testimony, their martyria to who Jesus Christ was in their lives and who they were in him. So their identity was completely fused with their testimony. The two could not be separated. They couldn't even be individually defined as their identities were completely found in their testimony as followers of Jesus Christ so that that designation as a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus wasn't just a part of their lives. It was their life. It was their life. It was their death. It was their calling. It was their purpose. It was their vocation. It was their ministry. It was their entire existence. And as a result, every single aspect of their lives and how they lived them were defined completely by their identity in Jesus Christ. It had nothing to do with what others thought about them or whatever titles they may have assigned to them. We see that same thing here with Jesus. He knew who he was and who he belonged to. And so the first question for us to consider this morning is, are we secure in our identity like Jesus was? Because our ability to share the gospel with confidence hinges on our ability to grasp who we actually are in Christ. Jesus knew who he was. And so even when many voices were speaking out against him, influential voices, popular voices, some voices of authority in society, no matter who was confronting him, Jesus never got rattled. He was never intimidated. He was never afraid to speak the truth and share his testimony because he understood who he was. And if you pay attention to his own testimony here in this part of the story, you'll notice that he repeatedly brings up two very important points about identity. The first is knowing where we come from. In verse 14, he says to the Pharisees, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from. Right? Jesus is making a direct connection here between the validity of his testimony and his own point of origin. In, in first century society, where you came from had a very significant bearing on how you were viewed by others, particularly uh, the honor or lack of it that was ascribed to you by other people. So your birthplace, your point of origin had a lot to do with the validity of your testimony for those who were listening. But even more than that, it was important for Jesus himself to know where he'd come from. 
And that is just as much the point that he was making here as any. Okay, let's keep reading and take note as we go how many times he references where he's from. Verses 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. And they did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Okay, so as the, as the religious leaders continue to question the, le- the legitimacy of Jesus' testimony, he repeatedly, uh, repeatedly makes references to where he's from. In verse 14, he says, I know where I came from. In verses 16 and 18 and 26 and 29, four times in this one conversation, he talks about the Father who sent me. In other words, he says, I've come from the Father. In verse 23, he says, I'm from above. And then later in the same verse, he says, I'm not of this world. And then in verse 42, as we'll see, he says, I came from God. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he knows where he's from, which is the foundation for the validity and authority of his testimony. And look, the same thing is true for us. Back in John uh, chapter 3, Jesus explains that everyone who is in him is born of the Spirit. That's also where he talks about us being born again. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Mary Beth read that this morning. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in John 20, 21, he says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. You see, once we come to Christ, we are given a new point of origin, a new beginning, a new birthplace, a new foundation from which we build our lives upon. And just as Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to testify to the truth of the gospel, we are sent by Jesus Christ into the world to testify to the truth of the gospel. And it is critical to that testimony that we understand that when we testify where it is we come from, because that is the basis of our authority. It's the stamp of approval on our legitimacy, our ability to share that testimony, the fact that we're sent by Jesus himself and we're born of that same spirit. When a, when a courier in the ancient world would carry a message, that message also carried the seal of the one who sent it. That, that signified and verified its point of origin. So that was the signet of authority carried by the messenger. In verse 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. 
You see, Jesus came from the Father, which meant that he carried the seal of the Father. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not only born of the Spirit of Christ, but according to Ephesians 1.13, we're also sealed with that same Spirit. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is how we're able to come to others and share our testimony with confidence because we know that we're sent by God and we are sealed with his spirit. This is a, a, a key element in understanding our true identity, knowing where it is that we come from once we are in Christ. And the second and equally important element in our identity as followers of Christ is knowing where we're going. You see, because not only are we given a new point of origin when we come to Christ, but we're also given a new destination. So once we, uh, we come with a testimony with all confidence, we can do that because we know where we've come from. We know that we've been sent by God under his authority with his stamp of approval and the seal of his spirit. That is our confidence then in coming to others with our testimony. But listen, when the heat gets turned up, which it will at times, just as we see with Jesus, the confidence that we have to continue in that testimony, even when others come against us, is knowing where we're going. Just look at how many times Jesus not only talks about where he's from, but also where he's going. In verse 14, he says, I know where I came from and where I am going. In verse 21, he says to the Pharisees, I'm going away. And then later in the same verse, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. In verse 28, he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. All right? Jesus not only knew where He came from, He knew where He was going so that no matter how strongly He was opposed, He was able to continue with boldness and confidence in that testimony because His destination was secure regardless of what anyone else said or did to Him. And yet when I hear some believers talk about their faith today or rather shy away from talking about their faith because they're worried about offending other people. I wonder, do we really have a grasp on our future, our destination? Do we really understand that we are here for a sliver of eternity and after that we will reside forevermore in the presence of a holy God who will reward us based on what we did with this sliver of time spent here on earth. Honestly, why are we so worried about offending people? Our future, our eternity is secure. We have absolutely zero reason for concern when someone is offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second question that we should consider today. Do we speak the truth like Jesus did? even when it's offensive to others, because for many people, the gospel is offensive. In fact, the gospel was intended from the beginning to be offensive. <laughs> there are numerous places in the Bible where the gospel of Jesus Christ is described as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. One of those places is 1 Peter 2.8. And if you continue reading the next couple of verses, it says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
Listen, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. It's completely unambiguous. Our testimony is going to cause some people to stumble, as it was intended to do. But that should never stop us, because we know where we're going. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see how important it is that we understand our destination. It's not so that we could shrink back away from the light when someone gets offended by the message. You see, it's so vital that we're secure in our identity like Jesus was by understanding where we come from and where we're going. Otherwise, listen, we will never be effective in sharing our testimony. We will shrink back every time we're opposed by those who are offended by this message, which, by the way, is a, a big part of the reason why I believe personally that we're witnessing one infinitesimal element of our society having its way in our culture today, while the sleeping giant that is the church of Jesus Christ largely sits idly by and watches as the religious freedom to express that gospel that we've enjoyed for generations is rapidly being stripped from us. It's not because of a political party. It's not because of another religion. It's not even because of anti-Christian sentiment in our government or in our society. No, the, the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ is being silenced in our culture today because we have forgotten where we come from and where we're going. And so there are entire elements of the church today that are cowering in fear over the possibility of offending someone. And yet when we read this account of Jesus sharing his testimony, I really don't think he was all that concerned about offending people who disagreed with his message. Why? Because the approval that he sought was from the Father, not the culture. And so it should be with us. We should be infinitely more concerned about offending the Father than we are about offending others in our culture today. And we will. Because the gospel is offensive. Let's keep reading and see how Jesus reacted to those people who opposed his message. Verse, uh, verses 31 through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. 
I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of uh, his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Them's fighting words. This is a blistering response from Jesus to those who claim to believe, and yet they don't fully accept his message. Verses 30 and 31, we're told by John that Jesus was addressing those who had believed in him, and yet he goes on to tell them, they're of the devil, which seems a bit confusing, but Jesus alludes to the reason why in verse 31. Immediately after John describes them as those who had believed in him, right after that, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then he goes on at length to point out how they are not abiding in his word. The word abide in that verse is the Greek word meno. It means to remain, to endure. It means not to depart from. So there's a difference, he's saying, between saying that you believe God's word and actually abiding in that word. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He said, it is important that we understand the difference between saving faith which is the possession of the true believer and the mere profession of faith. Many people mistakenly think that they enter into the kingdom of God simply by making a profession of faith. Certainly we know that not everyone who professes to be a believer is a true believer, which is what we're seeing in our story here today. Because if there are those who are truly his disciples, that means there are also those who falsely claim to be his disciples. And so it is today. There are those who claim to be Christians, followers of Christ who are not truly his disciples, which of course is unsettling to be sure for us. And it should be unsettling, but it shouldn't surprise us, right? In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And that has nothing to do, by the way, with earning our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. It is simply the evidence of true salvation, of true faith. These are the very people that we find Jesus, these religious people reserving some of his harshest words for, those who claim to believe in him, but are not truly his disciples. And just as Jesus confronted them with the truth, even though it offended them greatly, look, we should be doing the same thing, especially with those, especially with those who claim to be followers of Christ, and yet they only adhere to the parts of his word that don't offend them. Jesus didn't say, if you abide in some of my word or parts of my word, you're truly my disciples. No, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. That means all of it, all of his word. And we don't have uh, the time to work through it today. But if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus and Paul and the other disciples consistently reserve their harshest criticisms for religious people, both the religious Jews who hadn't accepted the gospel and those within the church who claimed to be followers of Christ, but were not abiding in his word. They were not remaining in his word. And so these early disciples would consistently show love and compassion for those in the world who were lost. They never judged those 
and yet they would show love and compassion and correction, sometimes harshly, for those who were, were religious, which was always done, by the way, always done out of a desire to see those who had strayed from God's word to come back to him. It all comes back down to love. It is the character of Christ. And so the point is, people are going to be absolutely at times offended by our testimony, both those who claim to believe in the gospel and those who do not. And our job as followers of Christ is not to shrink back from the truth in those moments. Our job is to, with listen, saturated in love and compassion, and yet even correction, if need be, express that truth, even when it offends people. Jesus said to these false believers, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. He said, you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. He said, you're doing the works your father did. If God were your father, you would love me. He said, why do you understand what I, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This is harsh. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He never backed down, even when his message was offensive, and neither should we, especially when it comes to those who say they represent Christ, but they're actually misrepresenting him. There's an entire element of the church today that has convinced people that we can accept the parts of his word that we prefer and reject those that we don't as being culturally irrelevant. But listen, cultural relevancy cannot be the litmus test for the validity of scripture. We either accept his word in its entirety and we abide in it or we have no part in him at all. Okay? There's one final question that I think we should ask this morning based on Jesus' testimony in our story today, and that is, do we stand in contrast to the culture like Jesus does? Let's finish the story for today, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do, seek my own, uh, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to them, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, ego me. It's the same statement God made when, in Exodus when he said, I am, that I am, I am, 
I am, right? It is the great statement that identifies him as divine, equally with the Father. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Interestingly enough, as the Jews begin to personally attack Jesus now, their first tactic, you'll notice, is to question his origins, where he came from. After all of these statements about knowing where he was from, namely the, from the Father in heaven, they accuse him of actually being a Samaritan, which was about the most slanderous uh, recrimination that they could have made against him because the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-held and passionate hatred for one another. And we've discussed that in recent weeks. They also accuse him of having a demon, which of course he denies. And then even as contentious, Listen to what Jesus does here. As contentious and offensive as they are toward him, as nasty as they are toward him, he continues to share the gospel with them. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Why would Jesus do that? Why not just walk away, pitch a couple of stones back at him on your way out, right? Why not just leave them to their own devices. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on them. Jesus continues to share the truth with these people who are insulting him in every imaginable way. It's because his primary desire through love is to lead them to salvation and to honor the Father in the process. Despite all of the offensiveness of the gospel and his uh, absolute commitment to share it even though it offended people, Jesus was always motivated by love. Even when his words were harsh and confrontational. In fact, his love for the Father and his love for people is what kept him from concerning himself with popularity among the culture of his day. That's why in verse 54 he says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. You see, Jesus never pandered to the crowd and he never tried to entice people to his message by convincing them that he was socially acceptable or culturally relevant. He never tried to be the next cool thing to show up on the scene. He didn't spend time uh, trying to impress people so that they would like him. On the contrary, Jesus' life was decidedly countercultural. He taught people to love their enemies. He taught people to pray for those who persecute you. He said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. How many of us live that way today? He, he said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5, 39 through 42. She, I have a hard time loaning out my books in my office. Afraid I'll never get them back, right? Unbelievable. Everything that Jesus said and did was unexpected. It seemed backward to the culture around him. And yet even when they railed at him with insults of the worst kind, not to mention the attempts on his life, he just kept loving them by telling them the truth, even the hard truth, especially the hard truth. In John 4, 12, he was asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? To which he explained that he was greater. In Matthew 12, 41, he explained that he was greater than Jonah. In Matthew 12, 42, he explained that he was greater than Solomon. You see, these statements were not going to win him any popularity contest, but he didn't back down from speaking the truth. And here in verse 53, they asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was... 
Ego emi, I am. Okay, these are, these are hard truths for the Jews to accept because he's explaining that he's greater than all of their greatest heroes of the faith. This is offensive. And this last statement about Abraham for them was the hardest truth to hear yet because now he is expressly claiming to be divine, equal with the Father, and that was not lost on these religious Jews. In fact, it was more than they could bear, even though it was the truth. And so they pick up stones to try and kill him. Stoning was prescribed, uh, the prescribed punishment for blasphemy. And that's how they viewed Jesus' claims here. But it wasn't yet his time to die, so it says he slips away. Okay, look, I have to be honest. When I look at the way that Jesus lived his life, how starkly in contrast his life was with the culture around him, I get convicted. I think about how easy it is for me, especially in years past, to spend time trying to figure out ways to package the presentation of the gospel message or ways to share my own testimony so that people will like it more or enjoy it more. Why? Because it's easy for a pastor to spend time worrying about whether or not people will like the way our church does church, the way we live out the gospel. Are we cool enough? Are we current enough? Are we relevant enough? Will people like us when they come in here or when they meet us out there? But in truth, I think that is probably a complete waste of time and energy. Because when we think that way, we actually put an undue amount of pressure on ourselves to begin to shape or even alter the message of the gospel so as to placate people's feelings, to try and make them like us. In fact, I don't think it's hard to find churches and church leaders today who preach and teach a partial gospel or a comfortable gospel, even a self-promoting gospel, for the sake of remaining culturally relevant, whatever that means, and gaining personal popularity with the masses. May God help us if we ever succumb to that kind of pressure for the sake of popularity. Because Jesus didn't concern himself with trying to fit into the culture. Not one bit. He just loved people and when they didn't love him back, he just loved them more and told them the truth. He never backed down. He never shied away when the message wasn't popular. He never tried to bring glory to himself. All that he did was love people and point them to the Father by telling them the truth unapologetically and unashamedly. And given that fact, I think it's healthy, quite beneficial when it comes to being an effective witness to the gospel. Instead of asking, are we cool enough? Are we current enough? Are we relevant enough? That instead we ask ourselves with all honesty and conviction, are we secure in our identity like Jesus was? Do we speak the truth like Jesus did? And do we stand in contrast to the culture like Jesus does. These are the questions that matter. This is how we live like Jesus, which is exactly what the world needs from us. Let's pray.